Hi, I'm Zhang Mei, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China. Each episode, we visit a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can be as big as a province, or sometimes as small as a village, or sometimes it may be a field of study, or simply a way of life. So, today our guest is U.S.-based French chef Jacques Pepin. Jacques has authored over thirty books and received honorary doctorate degrees from five American universities, as well as listen to this number sixteen James Beard Foundation awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award in two thousand and five, and an Emmy Award for his TV show with Julia Child, Julia and Jacques Cooking at Home, one of numerous TV shows that he starred in. Jacques was also awarded France's highest civilian honor, the Legion of Honor, in 2004, as well as the Chevalier of Arts and Letters in 1997, and the Mérite Agricole in 1992. I apologize for my French, but we'll keep going. So, where did all this start? Jacques was born in Bourg-en-Bresse in France, near Lyon. Where he grew up, helping his parents in the kitchen and in their first restaurant, Le Pelican. At thirteen, he began apprenticeship at the Grand Hotel of Europe, before going on to work in Paris. And ultimately, Jacques served as personal chef to three French heads of state, including Charles de Gaulle. In 1959, Jacques moved to the United States, first working at Le Pavilion. A historic French restaurant in New York City. Then, from 1960 to 1970, he was director of research and new development for Howard Johnson and developed recipes for the restaurant chain. At the same time, he earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from Columbia University. And the rest of the story you can read in Jacques' memoir, *The Apprentice*, the central topic of today's episode. Now, at this point, you may be asking yourself, "What this incredible French chef has anything to do with China?" So we are on the China podcast, right? Well, keep listening, and you'll find out. So to start off, Jacques, what an honor! Thank you so much for taking the time、yeah. to join us today. Thank you so much for saying all of that nice stuff about me. <laughs> It's all your achievement, right? Which is inspiring. When I was reading this book, I stop and think, how how did this thirteen-year-old boy standing in front of the grand piano and feeling like, you know, how am I going to ever make it? Right, but you made it. But we will start by making a connection with China. Let's start with the dish that you and your friends ate in China. I know that dish. My local friends in Kunming ordered it and told me it's called fish eaten twice. Yeah, yes. Could you describe that dish for us? Well, it was.、Uh, we were on the road there. I was invited by,、uh, at that time, Mayor Fernstein.、Uh, she was the mayor of San Francisco, and、uh, so we came to Shanghai and eventually went to Beijing. We went to the birthplace of Confucius, Chu Fu, I believe. I cook with the monk there, and、uh, at that point, we were at the Secret Mountain there. 
somewhere in that restaurant where I wanted to take note and I went to the market with the chef and there was a lot of fish, but those fish were coming wheelbarrow because it was far from the sea. So those were pitwater fish like tench, carp, catfish, that type of stuff, which he kept into a, you know, a container at the restaurant. And uh, when we came to the restaurant there, I was into the kitchen and I saw him emptying the fish, I mean, gutting the fish through the gill like in four or five seconds and slicing this through the skin, putting that into a cornstarch, I believe an egg white, and putting a skewer or a chopstick through the gill so that he lowered the fish into very hot oil. And it cooked very fast because it was cut to place it on a plate, bring it to the table, cover it. And at that point, the head was still moving, <laughs> the head of, of the gill and so forth. So with my... <laughs> American friend that I was with and said, Oh my God. <laughs> so my wife said, do something. So I broke the head of the fish, cover it and the fish, which was absolutely delicious. But that was really fresh fish, you know. Anyway, so now we had a great time in Beijing. Also, I went for the Peking duck. Well, Beijing Peking, they did the first Peking duck. And actually we were served only the skin there of the duck crispy with the hoisin sauce and so forth. And then. The flesh came into another dish, then the feet, then the liver. All of that came into different dishes. So very aspiring, you know, using that type of thing, which is my type of cooking. Exactly. When I mentioned the name of that dish, that fish, it horrified me as a Chinese person to see the fish head moving as well. And I'm very happy to report it's no longer on most menus. So I think we're making progress. And the Chinese chefs take the head and make a fish soup out of it to serve it the second time. Yeah, yeah. And same with Beijing duck. Yes. Which is completely the way you cook. Yes, absolutely. You know, I mean, cooking, uh, I was raised uh, in France during the Second World War, and we didn't have much to eat. And uh, my mother made miracle out of uh, dry bread or uh, an egg or, or whatever. So, uh, you know, I am very miserly in the kitchen as my mother was and that's where it come from and i hate to waste anything you know, and i don't using everything to cook zero waste right that concept is exactly the same way we grew up in china as well we eat pig heads tons ears blood nothing is thrown away chicken feet of course but in the supermarket culture today though like in america the kids don't even see those parts. I know. How did we come this far in this American culture? And is there a way that we can reverse or teach people to use more? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've given classes, especially with the, the foundation that we have now in the really poor area of the country. And the kid there, uh, a, a chicken for a kid there is rectangular with plastic on top. It doesn't have any feet, doesn't have any head, nothing of that. The only way they know a chicken is a rectangular thing with plastic on top. So we are far from uh, mother nature. And I remember when my daughter was small, upstate New York, I had a farm. I used to bring her class to uh, my house to take them to the garden, to pick up herb in the garden. Didn't want to show them how to kill a rabbit or something like that because they would have been traumatized for the rest of their life. But, but you know, uh, this is part of uh, where I was when I was an apprentice, you know, killing the chicken, plucking the chicken, killing a rabbit. Too. That was part of life. 
and uh, now it's way too far away and people get crazy when uh, you kill a fish or whatever so you have to do it well you have to do it uh, for the animal not to suffer certainly but uh, this is part of life you know so what advice would you give to parents today if they themselves want to be more in touch with nature or they want their children to grow up a little bit more in tune what would start by telling them to get rid of that iPhone at the table i mean no no iPhone at the table for for the parents or for the kid you have to eat together you know so i mean there is no place as uh, soothing and as uh, comfortable that the kitchen for a child remember coming back from school you will hear the voice of your mother the voice of your father the smell of the kitchen the noise of the the, the pot pans and so forth and the taste and those tastes are very visceral they stay with you the rest of your life you know they are very powerful they mean much more than food they mean home they mean security they mean love they mean so you know for a child uh, when my daughter was a year and a half or so i hold her in my arm and i make her stir the pot so she stir the pot so she could eat it because she made it with that you know and my granddaughter when she came and cooked with me i had a stool next to me and i said give me the salad you think it's clean enough do this let's go to the garden let's get parsley no that chive no that tarragon no taste the parsley there and then i take her to the market i say i need pear make sure they are ripe did you smell them you think they are ripe those pear or those tomato then she came back that established a platform for a discussion which start with food and of course the sitting down at the table the conversation continue and usually move to other area but uh, that type of situation was very very important in our life that family type of gathering and eating together every day i think people have gotten too far away from that yes i absolutely agree when your daughter was little how many meals were you able to eat as a family together every day usually lunch and dinner it depends when she was in school and so forth too but certainly every night we sit down well for i was married 54 years and for 54 years for me dinner with my wife at night sharing a bottle of wine was very very important that was you know the culmination of the day you know so and so it is with my daughter now and my granddaughter my son in law is a chef too so i mean family value are very very part of who we are in the family wow yeah in my family we also make sure like every evening we are sitting down having dinner together that is family time yeah i think it anchors me and the children so i want to steer us back to the beginning le piano i just love the part of you growing up in france tell us the story about the piano because i think it's so much you the stove in the kitchen you know we play the stove in the kitchen and though we call the stove the piano you know uh, like a piano to play and that was a very important part of apprenticeship and at that time you learn in a different way than today i've been teaching you know teaching cooking for years and years and it's quite different at that time you learn by just listening and repeating what people so the chef will tell you do this and of course your kid you would never have say why because he would have told you because i just told you okay so you do it you do it you do it and one day he told me go to the stove you start at the piano tomorrow and never thought that i could do it it was a year i'd been there a year 
plucking a lot of chicken and eviscerating fish and uh, cleaning the floor and uh, chopping parsley and slicing mushroom. And all of a sudden, you know, I was at the stove and I knew how to do it. So, you know, you, you learn in a different way than people do now. And it's also a question of age. Very often now I teach at Boston University and in New York. The students often have been to college to they are older. They are in the late 10 or 20. So it's different than a kid when I was 13, 14 years old. You teach in a different way. And to start with, you know, I was in apprenticeship in 1949. So, I mean, you can imagine that's over 70 years ago that I was in the kitchen and the world was quite different. The conversation that we have now too would never have happened 30, 40 years ago because the cook at that time was at the bottom of the social scale. Certainly in America, any good mother would have wanted her child to marry a lawyer, a doctor, but not a cook. Now we are famous. I mean, you know, we are. I don't know what happened. <laughs> so, so it was quite different. What happened here with television, with all of this, to even the food in America has changed an enormous amount for me in the, in the more than half a century that I've been here. So the idea at that point in the kitchen was never to create or do big world now. It was to conform. You go somewhere, you were not going to change anything. The chef said, do that and do it this way. And that's how you slice a tomato. I would never have turned it and slice the tomato in the other direction. You know, do that, say, why would you do that? So uh, it's quite different now where the chef often want to sign their own dish, make sure they know that I'm the one who did it, I'm creating that dish or whatever. That did not exist at the time. I work at the Plaza Athene in Paris. We were 49 chefs in the kitchen. And uh, one of the famous dish uh, was the lobster souffle. Well, I think the 49 chefs could have done the lobster souffle. You would never have known which, which one has done it because we all work, you know, to conform and learn. So you work from one restaurant to another restaurant and there is dishes which stay in your mind. I mean, I can close my eyes and if I have a, the striped bass we used to do at the pavilion, I can test it. Is that the striped bass of the pavilion or that the, the chicken of my mother or that thing? Those tastes stay with you forever. And you learn not through a typewritten page or a recipe. You learn through taste, adjusting, taste, adjusting. And those tastes stay with you. You know, so it's a different way of learning. Right. In fact, the way that you learned in France is very, very similar to, I think, in the Chinese kitchen. Well, I'm sure. Right. Chinese chefs are, are taught to conform. I mean, this part of the chicken needs to be cut this way. And then if it's thinly sliced and you cut a little deeper, you don't qualify. And that's why in Chinese cooking, it's the dishes people can relate to, not the chef. Yeah, right. Exactly like you said, a hundred chefs cooking Kung Pao chicken, they should taste exactly this way. Right. But then that brings the question of how do you modernize a way of cooking? Like in French cooking, how do you bring it up to date? In a sense, like in Chinese cooking, for centuries, there was not much innovation, but now it's gradually coming in. What was the process you saw the French cuisines innovating connect with the current times? To start with the exposure of the chef, you know, starting with people like Bocuse to in the 60s. So breaking down from all the tradition of classic cooking and moving into 
simplifying cooking in some way uh, with the fresher ingredients, as fresh as possible, uh, shortening the amount of cooking, cooking time very often for vegetable or certain type of meat and fish. So all of that was improvement which came in what we call la nouvelle cuisine, the new cooking in the 60s in France, starting with some a few great chefs too, and eventually came to America, that simplification. But of course, it was a simplification for people like me who had experienced what happened before. For more of the young chefs now, this is not a change because they've never learned the way it was before. So it is the way they do. And probably in that process, maybe too much emphasis was put on the personal creation. So the personal creation at that point led to a a lot of a mixture of ingredients to for no reason at all, and you end up having a, a bowl of raspberry ice cream with a slice of Roquefort. No one would have thought of that, <laughs> but no one has ever done it, so that's great. Well, there's probably a reason that you've never done it, because, I mean, what would you... So, you know, there is that type of thing. There are great chefs, however, like Daniel Boulou, certainly, or Thomas Keller in America, who instead of... A, trying to shock you by different ingredients which has never been put together. No, they work in a recipe in depth, you know, changing slight change a little more, slight change a little more, so that you end up, as I did, at Thomas Keller restaurant, and you have a puree of carrot, very simple. But you never tasted a puree of carrot as good as that puree of carrot. And that's a question of ingredient, question of simplification of the recipe, small change in depth. So it's a creation, but a creation in a different way. Not by mixing all the kind of ingredients, but working on a recipe in depth and the knowledge of the ingredient, the knowledge of the recipe. So for me, this is what a great chef is to start with. A great chef has to be a technician because at home, uh, it's quite different uh, when you're in a restaurant and it's 10.30 in the morning and you have 100 people sitting down at 12, well, you have to move. It's not a question only of doing something good. You have to produce and so forth. And so this where the technique comes, which has to do with repetition, 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 so you go faster, and, you know, so a chef, in my opinion, need to be a good technician first. That being said, I know a fair amount of chefs who are very good technicians, can work very fast, run a kitchen, and are relatively lousy cook. The food is okay, but not that great, because they are knowledgeable, you know, technique-wise, but they don't have much health. So for a great chef, he has to be a technician, but in addition to that, he has to have, you know, imagination and creation and talent, and so that's come with the technique, you know. But without the technique, it's very hard to express that talent and so forth because you don't have the know-how in your hand. So that's why the former apprenticeship that we have was really in the kitchen, repeating, 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 so that you can move faster at the stove. And then at that point, working with a chef, you try to absorb the idea of that chef, his sense or her sense of aesthetic and taste. And you taste whether it coincides with your sense of aesthetic and taste, it's immaterial. You have to do that there for a couple of years that you work there through the eye of that chef. Then you move to another chef and you do the same thing, then to another one. And after you've done eight or 10 years of this, you have absorbed an enormous amount of knowledge and point of view from different chefs. At that point, you start creating your own stuff according to your own sense of aesthetic and taste because Ultimately, you cannot escape yourself. You are who you are. You know, if I take you to the 10 greatest restaurants 
in the world or in America, I would say this one, this one is the greatest. You may pick up two other totally different than mine. Because ultimately, it's a narcissistic reflection on your own taste. Those two restaurants that I picked up happen to coincide exactly with my sense of taste, with my sense of aesthetic, so I'm going to pick it up. So what I'm saying is that ultimately you cannot escape yourself, your own taste, your own background, who you are. But if you learn through all of those chefs, those different points of view, then you are much better able to create something which uh, on a higher quality, you know, according to your own taste and sense of aesthetic. I was struck by what you said, ultimately you can't escape who you are, which was a question as I was reading your book, I was constantly asking, who is Jacques and where did he come from? I mean, there are a few things that jumped out at me. One was hard work. In any difficult situation, you just hustled. You moved your feet, you moved your hands, you worked really hard. And then another thing was for any other chef trained in the French system, you would have been completely boxed in. This is the only way to do it. But you had that creativity that, yes, chef, I'm going to do exactly what you ask now, but somewhere you found the freedom to go off script and experiment on your own. Where did all this come from? I mean, we talk about how much of your success were determined by the genes (laughs) and how much of it came from your parents' nurturing, how much was your own hard work? What do you think? Well, all of that are good questions. And the point is that I paint for over 60 years, you know, I've painting and so forth. I can look at painting that I did 60 years ago and say, I would never be able to do that now. I looked at it and it's almost foreign to me. I don't think this way. I couldn't do that. I would love to be able to taste the food that I did 50, 60 years ago. I probably would not recognize it. I would say, she, what is this? You move with the time. And... In America, I came to America for a couple of years. I thought I'll stay one year, two years, learn the language, leave, and I'm still here. But uh, very often I may be considered, you know, the quintessential French chef in America. Then you take one of my books and on page 22, you have a black bean soup with cilantro and banana on top that you would never have had in France because my wife was Puerto Rican and Cuban. Then I may have a New England clam chowder, uh, which I never had in France, or a Southern fried chicken, or a shirashi sushi, you know, or uh, something totally different. So I don't think that I was ever very chauvinistic about uh, cooking or French cooking. So I probably am the quintessential American chef now, if you look at my recipe. In addition to that, like in the last uh, two years because of the pandemic, Claudine, my daughter, told me, why don't you do small recipe of like three, four, five minutes for Facebook? She does Facebook. And so far, we've done 275 of those videos, those five, six-minute videos. And those are extremely simple. What I have in the refrigerator, what I have in the freezer, what I have in my pantry, don't showing people to do something very simple or using leftover or stuff like this. So again, it's a question of progress, a question of age too. When you're a young chef, when I work as a young chef in the greatest restaurant or did a book like the book I did, The Art of Cooking, there you tend to add, to add more, to add, to 
conflict too. And as you get older, your palate changes too, and your sense. So you tend to take away, take away, take away from the place to be left with something more essential and without too much decoration, embellishment, or whatever on the plate. If I have a great tomato out of my garden at the right temperature, a bit of the best possible olive oil and coarse salt on top of it, I don't, don't need more embellishment than that. So this is a function of age also. As you get older, your taste change and you move forward in other direction. So one is time, the other one is world exposure. Yes. Very interesting. Now, a few other things I really loved about your book. One of them is foraging. Yes. <laughs> I love the fact that you collected everything for your wedding. You caught the fish and you foraged planks to decorate the table. I love that sense of aesthetic. Where did your sense of aesthetics come from? And how do you cultivate that sense? I don't know. I don't really question myself much, but I mean, there is a great deal of satisfaction in growing something in your garden or in going into the wood and being able to uh, to identify some chanterelle or black chanterelle, wild mushroom, uh, that would cost a fortune at the market. And then you can get that. Or I'm going to the beach, uh, like I did yesterday here, and the roses are coming out now. And those are not spread with anything because they are wild roses. And they smell absolutely wonderful. And I take those petals of roses to dip them into egg white and sugar. It crystallizes on top, you know, doing that type of thing. Or wild carrot at the market, or wild asparagus, you know, or wild leek. So I love to be able to pick up those and to recognize them and so forth. It's part of also of tradition when I was a kid, you know, we used to go mushrooming and we used to do that. And there is those memories that stay with you. And what Proust, you know, a French writer talk about that type of the memory of the senses as opposed to the memory of the brain, where you tell me where were you in 1965 so my brain can go there. The memory of the senses you know, what he called the affective memory, our memory which surprised you when you're not expected. That is, when I walk in the wood with my dog and all of a sudden I smell wild mushroom and all of a sudden I'm eight years old walking in the wood with my brother or my father picking up mushrooms. So those memory, affective memory of senses, of smell, you know, of taste and all that are very immediate and very powerful different. So that's what stay with you. And for me, you know, that the way I was raised and that the way I made my life, I don't really question myself one way. Why did I do this or not? I made mistake like everybody else, you know, and if you can learn from your mistake, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I actually want to learn the sense of beauty, yeah. the, the way you're describing the dishes. It's just like being in touch with the nature. It's beautiful. Tell me again what you do with the rose petals. I have plenty in my garden. I want to know what I can do with them. <laughs> Those are wild roses, so they smell absolutely wonderful. And as I say, they have been treated with anything. You just take the petal, take an egg white, beat it a little bit so that it's not holding together, and just dip your petal of flowers in it to wet it. And you have sugar next to it. You put it in the sugar, press it in the sugar on each side until it coats it and leave it outside on a wire rack, for example, within uh, half an hour, it's going to be hard. And then you can keep it in a box in the refrigerator. You, you crunch on it too, and it's absolutely delicious. Very simple. Oh, you don't fry it. You just dip it. And just roll like this. Yeah. 
I do that for my granddaughter. Yeah, I did a book with my granddaughter called A Grandfather's Lesson. And uh, so I did a lot of uh, small, fun recipe like this, uh, even showing her how to cut a hot dog, you know, uh, in a different way so that it curl up and to put on a toast. Some funny thing like that or doing the petal of flowers or a little thing like that that she learned to do and she loved to do with me. So that was fun to cook with a kid like this. Or, you know, I'm, I'm doing a rabbit out of an olive or a grape uh, by cutting uh, the bottom and doing ear and putting it in there. So, you know, I used to do that for my daughter. Or I peel a tomato as my wife didn't like the peel of the tomato on a salad. But as I peel the tomato with a, a knife, again, technique, I do a rose with tomato skin a beautiful rose with the skin that you put in the middle of the salad. So all of those small area of decoration like that is good with the kid. They love that, you know. That's fantastic. Now, going to the last page of your book, I have to tell you, I was so sad. I'm like, wait, I'm not ready to say goodbye to this book yet. And I want to read just this little paragraph here. It says, while I do enjoy the esoteric, refined food of the great restaurants, I eat the food only occasionally. My everyday tastes tend to be a fare of roast chicken, braised pork, etc. The extraordinary deep orange apricots from the Rhone Valley, still warm from the summer sun and sticky with natural sugar and ripeness. I need family and friends to enjoy the dishes and the pleasure of dining. The two things I want to talk about here. One is the joy of simple everyday cooking. That's the way I look at travel. The Alpha Tower, necessary probably just once, <laughs> but I can roam, you know, the Rome Valley forever and ever meeting local winemakers and farmers and all the local people. So the charm of travel to me is very similar to the joy of food to you. It's the everyday living that is more interesting. So I want to ask, you know, how did you come to that sense? You made a very simple omelet really, really tasty rather than shooting for this, you know, lobster with a hundred different steps, but going for simplicity, that ease. There is place for both, you know. Occasionally you want to go to a great restaurant and have something extraordinary, you know, but I mean, this is not the way you eat every day. And this is a misunderstanding often of French food, certainly by American, because of the Michelin Guide. Where in the Michelin Guide, there is probably 10,000 restaurants, but there is only, I think, only about 600 star restaurants. There is only like 20 or 22 three-star restaurants, about 72 star restaurants, and about 400 one-star restaurants. I go to France, and I have more pleasure going into the country to a farm auberge and eat what they produce there than going to a three-star restaurant. Certainly, occasionally, yes, I want to go to a three-star restaurant, but it's an experience once in your life. But very often, for Americans, they think that French cooking is uh, those type of restaurants, you know, Michelin's type of restaurant, which in fact, in my family in France, I have many people who had never been in a three-star restaurant in their life. So it is not the way that people eat at home. So the Americans tend to see Italian cooking more this well, very simple, straightforward too. But when I used to take group from Boston University, I used to take group to France years ago. So we would go into the country to small auberge and they say, wow, this is so simple. It's like Italian food. I say, yes, to a certain extent, because 
you only consider, you know, do you think of French cooking only as something more sophisticated that it is occasionally, but not most of the time, not for everyday cooking, of course not. But can't if the quality of the ingredient, you know, and the simplicity of the recipe. Mm. As I said there, you know, if you have those apricots from the Rhone Valley right, right on the tree, I mean, there is nothing you can do with that. Or you go to a three-star restaurant even and you get really the wild strawberry or the wild raspberry, you know, and the smell of it too, just you have to pick it up in the shade, under the leaf, not in the sun. It has less taste too. And those wild berry there that you pick up with the creme fraiche, just a cream from a farm, you know, that's it. Don't do anything else to this. You're going to screw it up, you know, because you have those extraordinary beard cream and all that, and you cannot beat that mother nature, you know. So sometimes you have to realize that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chinese travelers love going to France. And the Michelin guide is a Bible. It used to be they were a part of the Michelin Guide. I think they changed the name now. But it was a whole line of restaurants which were great quality for the minimal amount of price. And it was, uh, I forget how it was labeled in a certain way. And when we were traveling in France, I may go to a one-star, two-star restaurant, one in the area. But very often I would look for those restaurants where you have great food for minimal amount of money, which was, uh, it was under a special section too. And certainly I would tell people to do that, to experience also what we call les fermes auberges, the inn, the farm inn. So those are farms who have a little inn, and usually it's very limited menu, two or three dishes, but that's what they do every day. And usually more, they have to have more than 60% of what they cook has to be grown right there, you know. Those farm in, uh, sometimes you have great food, very simple. I remember going to one of those with my wife and my brother uh, somewhere in the northeast part of France. And I was looking for that farm there was a sign on the road. And when I came in, in the courtyard, there was some chicken running around and a pig and so forth. But there was a door open and I go into the kitchen and there was a young girl working at the table doing her homework. And I say, is that the farm over? She said, yes. She said, oh, let me call my mom. So she called her mom and she said, okay, so we cook. It's going to take about 45 minutes. She did. I said, we have plenty of time. And, you know, she cooked for us. Very simple, whatever they are that day. And for me, you know, those memories are more important certainly than the three-star restaurant. I mean, I have eaten in the greatest restaurant in the world, but this is not the menu or the meal that I remember. The meal that I remember are the one that I did with the family for a special occasion or usually with people that you love, with the family, simply at home. Do you remember those meals? Probably more than the the three-star restaurant meal, for me at least. Beautiful, beautifully said. Yeah, so inspiring. Now, Jacques, last question. I know you are releasing another book in September. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's going to be a little bit like the book that you show there, The Apprentice, because it's a different type of book. As I said, I've been planning for a long time, and uh, over 54 years of marriage, for 54 years when people came to the house, I wrote the menu down what they had, what we cooked that night, and people sign on the other page and say funny things or whatever. So like Claudine, my daughter, she's in her mid-50 now. She came home a couple of months ago. She said, what did I eat for my third birthday? I said, well, let's look. We looked in the book and we find her when she was three years old. 
she did menu herself, she wrote it down too. So I have those memory of all my life in those I have 12 books like that of menu. So I realized when I was illustrating those menu, I illustrate with a lot of chicken. So I decided to do a book on chicken, illustration of chicken, especially I come from Bourg-en-Bresse in France. It's considered the greatest chicken in France, the Bresse chicken. Anyway, so I have about 130 pounding of chicken. So I wanted to do a book with that. And the publisher said, okay, but after they said, well, we want recipe. I said, I don't want to do recipe. I have 30 books of it. So I decided to do story like I have in the book that you have there, story about chicken and about eggs all over. And there is some recipe that I, but not in the conventional way that I explained. I can explain recipe like my mother used to do this or a friend used to do that. But there is recipe, most of them are not feasible. For example, I talk about uh, La Mère Brasier, you know, a mother in Lyon, in Lyon, France, where I'm from. It was very well known for those formidable women who were great cook. And as I said, in my family, I have 12 restaurants in France all run by women, my two aunt, cousin, sister-in-law, niece, all women running. So Lyon was very well known for the mother cooking. And the, maybe the most famous of all was La Mère Brasier, a three-star restaurant in Lyon, where Bocuse, even the great chef Bocuse, did his apprenticeship there with La Mère Brasier. And she was very well known for the poulet en bessie, that is, it's a chicken in a pig's bladder, inflated pig's bladder, under the, the skin of the chicken she put truffle, of course, and then put it to the bladder with one onion, carrot, one leek, that's it, and it's pushed in the bladder and brought to the table, all inflated like this. So it's very dramatic, but very simple. And then it's opened there, the chicken is removed, the juice is reduced with some butter, and that's it, it's served this way. So it was pretty famous. I'm saying that because I tell story like that in the book, and very often, I mean, at the beginning, my editor say, why don't you give me some list of ingredients and stuff? I said, but this is not, those are story. It's not, so I say, you want me to give you a list for that? Okay, one pig's bladder, one truffle, to, <laughs> who is going to find it? That doesn't really exist. <laughs> so this is the, the type of book that it is. It's book of story, story about chicken, story about chicken when I was in Africa, even when I was in China, story about chicken in France, story when I cook for the president, story when I cook for my kid, you know, that's it. So this is that type of book, which uh, I hope people will enjoy. Oh, I am definitely getting it. Can't wait. So for all of us who want to follow and get the updated information on your new book, Jacques Pepin Foundation on Instagram. Uh, Facebook too, yeah. You know, on Facebook, I do a show like almost every day. My daughter does that, so yes. Wonderful. And you do a show every day? Yeah. When we do it, like I did it last week, we do 10 usually. I do 10 in one day. Those are like four or five minute shows, not very long. And so Claudine has about 280 of those. So uh, she shows them uh, yeah, almost every day, a different one. Thank you so much. Any parting wisdom on food, family, cooking? Cook with love, you know, cook with love and share food and cook for a stranger. I mean, uh, the table is a big equalizer. You know, when you are a foreigner, uh, you go in a foreign country, you don't speak the language, people look at you with suspicion, you know, and then you sit down at the table in the bistro there, you order the bottle of wine, local food, and people look at you, all of a sudden you are more human. And then you send them a bottle of wine or whatever, then all of a sudden, you know, food is a great equalizer this way, bring people together, you know. This is what we need more in diplomacy, food, sharing food. 
I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Jacques, for taking the time. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the China Travel Podcast, produced by Wild China Travel and hosted by me, Wild China founder Zhang Mei. For every episode, you can find a summary with timestamps and a list of resources on our website, wildchina.com. If you enjoy this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Wild China Travel or me personally at Wild China May. That is M E I. Thank you and see you next time.